praise you, my Lord. Father, we've just sung, Lord Jesus, we've just sung that you are here with us and you're faithful and you are true. Lord, I pray this morning as we turn to your word, that God, that these words will not just wash over us, but Lord, we would have ears to hear. That Lord, that that hope would arise, that encouragement would build us up. That Lord, that we would feel some of what you see in us. That God, you would be glorified, that Father, that you would take these words and you would use them powerfully. Jesus, we love you and we recognize your sacrifice this morning and we're so grateful that you are interceding for us right now at your Father's right hand. And Lord, I pray, just as Paul prayed, Lord, I pray now that you would give a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him to every one of us, that Lord, we would have an intimate knowledge of you this morning, Jesus. Praise your name. We love you. We're grateful. Amen. 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 Thank you, team. It's good to see Jameson. Yes. Look at wow, there's like, a whole four people who are happy to see you there, Jameson. That's, that's four more than I usually get in the first thing in the morning, so well done. Jameson's back for the weekend, which I don't believe is, is God's will for him. I think God's will is that he'd be back for the whole summer. But, you know, young adults, hey, psh, what are you going to do? No, it's, uh, it's, good. it's good to see one of the uh, young men of the house returning to the house. It's good. Before I start, I want to give a special uh, shout out to a special couple called Jim and Julia, who are actually in Taiwan, uh, good friends with Joseph. Uh, I don't know, where's Joseph? He's over there. And uh, uh, we, um, we were chatting the other day about Jim and Julia, who are missionaries in Taiwan, and they watch our services every week. So the South is actually their church. Is that right, Joseph? So Jim and Julia, it's great to see you. We love that you are with us. And uh, you got way more hand clap than Jameson did, just saying. So it's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. So uh, we love that you are here, and God bless you in your work. Um, I'm looking over there, by the way, because there is actually a camera, just in case you think, why is he gazing off into the distance? All right, turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to continue in our study in Romans chapter 8, the greatest chapter in the Bible, so says uh, many good theologians and commentators. We're going to get there in just a second. Before we get there, I just want to remind you of a couple of things that we talked about uh, the week before last. If you did not listen to last, uh, sorry, uh, two weeks ago's sermon, Romans 8 verses 14 through to 16, I highly recommend that you do because it really is a platform from which I'm speaking today. One of the stories that I shared uh, was one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, which is where Jonathan and his armor bearer decided, basically Jonathan uh, got up in the morning, this is First Samuel chapter 14, and he suggested to his armor bearer, hey, let's go out and see whether we can find ourselves some Philistines to kill. And so uh, the armor bearer uh, was like, I- I'm happy to do whatever you want to do. I'm paraphrasing, but please read it uh, later on. If you haven't read it, it's a fantastic story. And uh, so Jonathan says, okay, here's the plan. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go and find ourselves some Philistines. And I know they're on the top of a, of a gorge and we'll be at the bottom. And we'll show, this is what the scripture says, we'll show ourselves to them. And if they say, hey, come on up, then we'll go up because it, and I quote this, it may be that God will be with us. 
See, now, if I was the Philistines, I'd be like, I'd say what? what? What's the plan? We're going to go and literally show ourselves to them. That's what the scripture says. And if they say, come on up, we're going to do it because God may be with us. That's your plan, Jonathan? Can we sit down and talk about this for a little bit? Can I see the strategic plan the next three, five, ten years? And can I have some sort of flow chart to show me that you're in control and that God is actually going to follow through? But the armor bearer is like, no, let's do it. That's a great plan. It's a wonderful plan. Let's do it. So this is what they do. They go down to the middle of the gorge. They yell up. They show themselves to the, the Philistines. They wait. And then the Philistines look down, and and no surprise at all, given that there's only two of them, they say, hey, come on up. And the Bible says this. I love this. Yeah, yeah, come on up. We're going to show you a a thing. It actually says that. We're going to show you something. Come on up. So they climb up, and then they start fighting. And there's this incredible passage. If you read it, it's just a small paragraph. Don't skip over it. But you'll see that it's after they start killing the Philistines, the Bible says that God joins in and sends panic and earthquake through the camp. After they start fighting. Not before. This is an incredible example of the type of life that God has called us to as Christians. And I said last week, and I, uh, the, the week before last, I said it very emphatically because I truly believe this, that we do a poor job as Christians of presenting what the Christian life should actually be to the next generation. Because in many ways, our generation and generations before us, many Christians, not all, but many Christians have got the mindset that when we get forgiveness and we come to the cross and we become Christians, that that equals a life of comfort, that Christianity and church just becomes an activity very much like we, you know, we join a golf club or it's just something else that we do. Whereas I read stories in the scriptures where people are stepping out boldly and following through the call of God on their life because they have this assurance of not only where they are in life today that God is with them, but they have a hope of the future. And so they're willing to do crazy things. It may be that God might be with us. It, because here's what Jonathan's saying. He's echoing what Paul says Hundreds of years later, when Paul says this, in a prison, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is Paul basically saying, hey, you know what? God may get me out of here. I may get out here alive. And you know what? If not, that's okay. Because for me to die is gain. That's the mindset. You see, if we lived that out, then we would be completely unstoppable. We would live our lives in a, in a, with a lens and, a, and a, a mindset that would actually be uh, country changing. Country changing. I truly believe that. Drew, could you just dip these lights just a little bit for me? Because uh, I'm starting to see the inside of my retinas. And as pretty as they are, I'd, uh, that'd be good. Keep going. There we go. Brilliant. Thank you. I can see you all. You are there. Great. It's like laser eye therapy as I'm preaching. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. So how is it that Jonathan and Paul and David and these other characters in the Bible are willing to do exploits and live life in a way where Christianity should be? Because I said that I was preaching this, this last, uh, last night at 33. There is uh, this uprising within young adults where they are chasing after political ideologies 
and causes that they think are incredible and amazing that history has proven are actually devastating to history. Millions of people die, but they like the idea of these causes, for example, Marxism, because they see in Marxism, for example, this cause, this ideology, this, this utopia that they're chasing, they want to give their life to, that there's an answer to this, and they're giving their lives to it, not realizing that ultimately that leads to death shame and sin. And see, Christianity leads to life, righteousness, hope, and eternity, and has the more powerful cause, and it has a utopia, if you like, attached to it, that is phenomenal. And so if we, as Christians, started presenting the idea that Christianity is a cause, an adventure, a life that you give your life to because it actually sees transformation in our community, then young people, young adults, will actually do exploits. I... As hard as this is, as a dad with four children, I could just stop there, couldn't I? It's hard being a dad of four children. But you know what, if, if, and, I, and they're praying this through, certainly Luke and Zoe, okay, God, what is it that you want me to do in my life? And I have to, as a dad, rejoice in the possibility that what they choose to do in life, that if it is to go and do something in a dangerous place on behalf of Jesus, that I have to rejoice in that because they're being Jonathan. They're being Gladys Aylward. They're being, okay, God, here's my Bible, here's my life, here's my money, use me. And their lives might be short, but their lives given to the gospel is the most glorious thing that they can ever do. I have to be okay with that as a parent. That is a better place to be as a parent than mollycoddling them. That's a Canadian word as well, right? Mollycoddling, protecting them, saying, let's just protect you from all the nastiness. No, go into the nastiness and be Jesus to that. Because you have an assurance of something that's far bigger, far more hopeful, far more incredible than this life can ever give you. And that is what we're talking about this morning. See, in verse 18, Paul says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Uh, Hopefully some of these scriptures will appear when Dwayne's catching up. Thanks, Dwayne. So verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a word there in the middle of that verse that I want to speak to very carefully, very lovingly. And as a pastor, it's very much what my week is often involved in, uh, which is suffering. Not my own necessarily, and I have stories that you know, many of you are aware of that I would say, yeah, that, that was a time of suffering. But what I'm very aware of is the people right now in this room who are going through deep challenges, whether it be health issues or circumstantial issues or mental issues or, or, or emotions or family or whatever it might be. And you would go, yeah, that, that's where I am. If I was going to describe what my life is like right now, I would say it's suffering. And if not you, then maybe somebody you know. Maybe somebody you sat by. Maybe somebody that you spend time with. Maybe a family member. There is deep suffering in the world at large. It's a time of corruption and bondage, as we'll see in a second, and, and it's suffering. And I love the way that the Bible unapologetically jumps into deep issues of suffering, because here's the deal. Please listen to this, it's important. 
The world outside of Jesus has no answer for suffering whatsoever. You see, I said this last couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to go into it in great detail like I did a few weeks ago. But now we have such a reliance on ourselves rather than on the supernatural that when suffering comes into our lives, we actually have no reason or answer for why it's there. Because the reality is, if you are an atheist and you believe in, uh, in uh, evolution in the larger scale in terms of the way life forms, then you have to therefore, ergo, believe that the, the weak are dying off so that the strong could flourish. That's evolution. And so the idea of suffering, especially health suffering, there should be this cosmic shrug, say, well, that's just part of evolution. Even in Christendom, there's this idea that has come in that suffering is not part of Christianity. I refuse to accept this sickness. I refuse to believe that, this is, uh, that God is in this. I refuse to accept this bad thing that's happening to me. And there are preachers around the world, especially in poor countries, because why wouldn't they want this, that you're suffering, that if you just say these words, give this money, watch this TV channel, help me buy my jet, whatever it might be, if you could do that, then this suffering is going to be alleviated because God wants to give you 30, 60, 100 fold and you too could drive a Mercedes just like me. The prosperity gospel, it's evil. It's unbiblical because how can you read a scripture like that and say, you know what? Yeah, God doesn't want you to suffer. You can't. And there are people even in this city who are so focused on their present suffering, believing that God is not part of it, that they can't relate to the fact of this incredible statement that Paul is saying is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a beauty that Paul is trying to describe here. And I was praying in our pre-service prayer, God help me this morning to communicate something that is actually incommunicable. Is that a word? Did I nail that? Praise the Lord. Thank you. You'll get a clap. Thanks, Tim. That how do I do, do justice to this idea that know how bad our suffering is now, that it does not compare to the glory that is to come? How do I do justice to that? Because, Pastor Glenn, it hurts now. It's painful now. So me being giddy up here like I normally am going, yeah, but it's going to be great in the future. Well, that sucks for now. Help me now. And so I'm very conscious of that when I preach. And my prayer is that as I speak about this future glory, that the Spirit of God will speak to you and give you the hope that only He can. Because that's why I prayed before I started that He would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, Ephesians chapter 1. So we would have an intimate knowledge of what I'm about to preach because my words alone aren't going to do it justice. But this future glory, Paul is saying, it's not worth comparing. The suffering that we feel, the suffering that we see, that the glory that is to come is so mind-melting that you cannot even begin to compare our suffering to the beauty of what is to come. So last week I said, I don't think we do good justice to what life should be like now. I also don't think we do good justice to what life is going to be like in the future for those who are in Christ Jesus. For I consider it's not worth comparing. Suffering is part of the human existence. 
It's part of who we are. It's part of what happens. And many of you are struggling with that. Know people who are struggling with suffering. It's part of what it means to be human. So as a church, we could go, well, let's just pretend it's not happening. Because it must be because there's some sin in your life. Or you're not being faithful enough. Or you're not giving enough. Or you're not saying the scripture often enough, like a spell. That's why you're suffering. That you're just not positive enough. Or whatever it might be. Or, we can actually look at what the scripture says. And Paul says, let's take our eyes off the suffering. And put our eyes on the future glory. And then he goes deeper in verse um, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That phrase there, eager longing, literally means this, and I like this, because all of us can understand this. It's tippy-toe eagerness. It's, it's that, oh, this is going to be so great. You know when little, little ones get really, really excited and they get all tippy-toey? Do you know what I mean? Is the, hello, yeah? Okay, encourage the preacher, please. The, the, it's like, it's Christmas. Are we, oh, is it Christmas? I feel like a right Wally doing this, but I'm just trying to describe to you visually what this, this expectancy is like. Another way that it can be described is this, and, and there was a beautiful wedding with a young couple in our church uh, yesterday, but when the bride comes in from behind and, and everybody turns and looks at the bride, straining to see what she looks like. Nobody's looking at the best, at the best man or the, or the husband-to-be at that moment. They want to look what the bride is. But there's this straining. How beautiful is the bride? It's the same word. It's a straining forward. It's an eagerness. It's an anticipation for what is to come. And Paul is saying, for the creation, that's us as well, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This revelation of the sons of God is an event that's coming. It is coming. And the creation is on tippy-toe, straining towards what is to come. So the first question I have for us this morning in application is this, is what is it you're straining towards? What is it you are straining to see? What is it you are straining to grab? What is it you are straining to get for yourself? What is it that you see as the answer to the suffering or the challenge or the circumstance or your lot in life? What is that? Because Paul is saying that the hope, and listen, boldness, assurance, exploits, adventure, Jonathan-minded, Paul-minded, is based on this idea of straining towards an event, straining towards the glory of God. So what is it that we strain towards? Well, if I could just get that job, straining towards, if I could just get that acclaim, if I could just get that recognition, if I could just get that situation stored, and you strain towards it, and what you're actually doing is you're putting all your hopes, all your attentions on that thing that ultimately could and perhaps will fail you. If I could just get that relationship, if I could just get that car, if I could just get that house or that contract, whatever it might be, then this This suffering, this challenge, this circumstance will be alleviated because I will have that. And Paul is saying, no, 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 you need something bigger. You know why? Because you are bigger than that. You've been designed differently than that. What is it we strain towards? This cosmic creation straining with eager longing towards the revelation, the revealing of the sons of God. How does this help? 
See, Paul is pointing to a future that keeps us bold and strong. And some of you need, all of us need more boldness. Some of you need extra strength this morning. Paul is saying, fix your eyes on the glory to come because it will help you in today. So you can endure knowing when relief is coming. I remember um, 18 months ago, I had some surgery and, and uh, no real big deal, but it, I knew that there was going to be quite a few months of pain after when scar tissue and everything else is, is sorting out. And you know, the, 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 the thing that gave me hope to endure the times where it was miserably sore was knowing or hoping that there'll be a time in the future when that pain will no longer be. I could endure the pain far more effectively knowing that there was going to be some relief at the end. Now I'm talking about relief, I hoped, within the next few months. It actually took about 18 months. Paul is referring to a relief that is eternal. That even if we don't experience it today or next year or in 10 years time or in 50 years time, he is saying there is going to be a day, my friend, when the revealing of the sons of God, when, when, when there will be this event that happens, when all that, that you are suffering in, the injustice that you are dealing with, that pulls you down, the challenge and the difficulty today, all that will disappear. And we should hope in that. We should believe in that. So that when you don't get that contract, when you don't get that car, when you don't get that career, when you don't get that thing that you are putting all your hopes and attention in, that it's in a cosmic, it's going to be okay because you, my friend, in Christ Jesus, if you are a Christian, you have a hope that is far deeper. If you are not in Christ Jesus, if you are not a Christian, if you have not submitted your life to Jesus, then frankly, you're on your own. You do have an eternity, but it's not an eternity filled with hope. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Okay, I I wish I could preach on this, but let me just tell you, Paul is not talking about Satan. Read it again, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who's the him? It's not Satan, it's God. That should be a capital H. It's God. See, God turned over creation in Genesis chapter 3. So God is incomplete. God is not this, there's this crazy theology out there, you can call it open deism or whatever you want to frame it, that has this idea that God created the universe and then stepped back and let it get on with itself. You cannot read the scripture with that lens on because the scripture is filled with evidence that God is intricately involved in everything. It even says, even in the, in the, in the movement of the eagle in the sky, he is in control. So God is in control. I'd love to preach more on that verse because it, it creates some problems for us in our Western mindset, but I haven't got time today. In hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's that word again, freedom of the glory. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, not only are you suffering, but all the creation is suffering. That you are living in a world that is suffering. That our culture is suffering, our cities are suffering, that our, our whole globe is suffering. Now you can apply environmental to that, you can apply pollution to that, sickness to that. It's all encompassed with this idea of this truth from Genesis 3 of the fall. 
So as a result of the fall, not only is suffering and sin and sickness part of our world, but our whole world is groaning, expectant, straining towards something. This is a great description of the world we live in, this bondage and corruption. My life, we live in a rough world. And we are sh- I, uh, Somebody in the church posted something this week of... Of a, of a guy um, and I'm not even sure which country it was I think it was a Muslim I think, I'm very sure it was an Islamic Muslim country where this guy was being videoed pushing his child towards soldiers from the UN I believe and, and yelling go shoot trying to get him killed throw rocks at him shoot him shoot him he was trying to entice the soldiers to shoot his kid. The little boy was maybe this big, right, Sarah? And he's picking up rocks because his daddy's telling him to throw rocks at the soldiers in the hope that he'll get shot. Is politics working? Is social justice schemes working? Is there a corruption at a level that we don't, can't even comprehend as Kettle Valley dwellers? There's a depth of corruption and heart orientation that is so deeply evil that if we are trying to fix it and band-aid it, then we have no hope. The creation itself and everyone in it is straining towards something better. Suffering in itself is an evidence of God because if God is not, if we don't have this moral standard, how do we know it's suffering at all? How do we know rape is rape? How do we know murder is murder? Isn't that not just part of life? No, we know it's wrong because we've been wired for something better. And we're all straining towards it, including creation itself. Straining towards this freedom of the glory. That is our hope. So when I watch videos of this little boy being pushed towards some soldiers in the hope that he would, they would be enticed to shoot him because he's throwing little rocks at them, I can go, God... I'm so grateful that justice is coming. I am so grateful that there is a better world coming, that there is freedom coming. And it might not be in my lifetime, but it gives me hope. Otherwise, I wouldn't want to get out of bed in the morning. I'd want to go and live in a cave and just pretend it wasn't happening. I don't understand how people live without this eternal hope. Whether it be plastics floating in our ocean, whether it be waste or pollution... The world is breaking apart in, an, in a way that is, I'm, I'm told, has never been seen before. It's our, um, our 25th anniversary this year, and, uh, which I'm very excited about. And probably since our fifth anniversary, Sarah has been planning a big trip. Uh, and I think that was mainly because I probably did such a rubbish job of the fifth anniversary, which I believe Jack and Jason just celebrated recently. So congratulations, guys. So I hope you did a really good job, Jason. Otherwise, Jackie will already be planning a really big trip. So I'm like, okay, so this big trip's been coming for the last 20 years. And I'm just kind of a typical guy. Just kind of, well, maybe she just won't mention it. And then then we're getting closer. We need to do a big trip, 25th anniversary. Well, what do you mean by big? Because, you know, like if we decided to walk, Chilliwack's a big trip. Just a long way getting there. Well, you know... 
But no, we started to save about five years ago, so the big trip is coming. July 1st, we're going on our big trip, and we're going to Maui. We're very excited, never been to Maui, going for two weeks, and, uh, and we, it's, it's going to be wonderful. We're going to celebrate our 25th. It's going to be great. And then the volcano erupted. I didn't want to tell Sarah the first couple of days because I, I was like, okay, well, maybe it'll calm down. Apparently, volcanoes don't calm down. Last time it did what it did, it was apparently 88 days of spewing molten hot lava and fog and, and all the other just crazy stuff. It was just getting worse and worse. I was like, well, now it's hitting the ocean, so now there's airborne glass. What? Airborne glass? It's crazy. You hear the guy who had his leg come, cut off by a slab of lava? I'm like, yeah, let's go on holiday to Maui. But I've done my research, Maui's fine. It's a long way away from the volcano and the trade winds are taking the thing. But the world, it's going to be fine, Sarah. It'll be wonderful. Part of me actually wants to go near the volcano, I've got to admit. Um, but we're, we're going to be fine. But creation is groaning. It's groaning. So what is the answer? What is the answer that our culture gives? Let's band-aid it. Let's make money from it. Let's bring up fear so that we can increase the amount of money we can make from it. Maybe social justice. Maybe if we change the prime minister or the president. Or maybe we do this. Maybe we do that. And it's just not working because Paul is saying here, listen, we need freedom. From, and the freedom comes of the glory. Paul points us to a future that keeps us bold and strong. And then he goes on, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only that, the creation, but ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. I have to be really careful with this bit. Uh, if we can just go to the verse before, because I'm just going to talk very quickly about childbirth. I have to be very, very careful. What I do know, and I can say this without any shadow of doubt, because Jesus said this, <laughs> so I have, to, I have to be careful, and Paul said it as well, that there is this ability to be able to deal with the pains of childbirth because of the future hope that is coming from the child. And so Paul is saying, we can deal with the pain and the suffering because we know there's going to be time when there's this beauty presented to us and it's going to be ours to love and to cherish and enjoy. That this longing that we've had for so long will be presented to us in Christ Jesus if you believe in Jesus. And then he says this, and he explains what it is, finally. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. Let me give you an illustration as to what Paul is alluding to. I set this up earlier. I was very impressed, but none of the worship team actually said anything to me while I was throwing rope around the stage. This is not my illustration. Uh, this illustration was actually first done by Francis Chan. And so, Francis, you ever watched this video? Thank you. I've adapted a little bit, but this, is, this illustration is, I just want you to imagine this rope and all analogies when it comes to God always fail at some point, and this one will as well. But just, to, just imagine for a second that, um, that this is the beginning of time when it comes to uh, when the universe was first created. Not eternal God, because I would need an eternity of rope, but this is time. So this is the Big Bang. Boom! that I believe God started, by the way, because I think he likes big bangs. And then 
there's the fall, Genesis 3, and things just start getting messed up. Time is going, you're going through the medieval times, Jesus' times come and gone, medieval times, and life and time is just going. So now you're going, wow, that's a really long rope. I wonder if he's a new earth, old earth, or whatever. That's just, don't think too deeply. Just, this is just time. Okay, and it keeps on going. And it's just getting more and more corrupt, more and more tangled, more and more messed up, until eventually we come to your lifetime. Your lifetime. This little bit of time is you. For some people it can be longer, for other people it's very short, but this is you. And you are kind of linked, if you like, to this whole whack of time that has gone before you. And so it carries on after you. Now I'm not saying this is now world time, I'm talking about eternity. Just imagine this rope goes on forever. It goes out the door, not just behind that box, out the door and on forever. That is eternity. And we have this little time, Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, this is your day. This is your day. And we have all our focus on this. And we have all our attention on this. We put all our energy on this. We focus on this so ultimately that this in itself, our lifetime, our, the things, the elements that make up our life become everything to us and we lose sight that we are standing on the shoulders of what has been, looking into the distance of what will come. We come so focused on this and then we work all our days for this tiny little bit at the end. That bit when I get to go fly fishing every day and I don't have to do anything, this bit where I can buy that boat, have that kind of, uh, you know, that fancy lifestyle, I'll save TFSA, RSP, RESP, look after my kids, sounded like a song then, and then come right to the end of my life and then I die. So my whole focus is on this. And we don't look to the future freedom, glory, and hope that God says, this is what we should have our attention on. Not this, because if we make our decisions on this alone, then we are so short-sighted that we're actually losing the reality of what we have been created for. We've not been created for this. If we just get focused on this, then we miss out completely. You see, this is enlivened, emboldened, encouraged, and Jesus pushes us towards a greater hope, and we will do great exploits in this, or we can hunker down with our kind of metaphorical uh, safety helmets and just try and eco our way through life just so we can go and play lots of golf and spend time with people serving us and floating around on a boat at the end. Is that what life is about? See, Paul is saying there's a freedom, there's a redemption of our bodies coming. So eternity stretches off in front of us. And Paul is saying this, if we could grasp what this freedom is like, then we will endure the suffering and the shame and the challenge of today. If we could grasp what the future freedom looks like in heaven, new earth, new heaven, then we will live life differently here. We won't worship this. We'll worship him that gives us this. For some people in the room, you may not have this in heaven, but you do have this in hell. Ooh, that seems a little harsh. Well, the same Bible that says that God is loving also says that He's holy and He's just. And so the same Bible that says there is heaven also says there's a hell. 
And so the Bible talks about lost and found, sheep and goats. You're either here in eternity with Jesus or you are eternity in hell. And eternity is a long time. But this idea of heaven, it's really interesting how the church has got caught up with this pop culture image. You know, the Bruce Almighty idea of heaven. Everything's really bright and white. And God's up on a ladder somewhere fixing lights like great uncle God. You know what I mean, Bruce Almighty? If you've not seen that movie, then never mind. But heaven's really bright. It's got lots of clouds, lots of singing, flying naked baby angels. And we kind of go, is that what eternity's like? Because I don't like clouds, they're wet. I don't really like singing. I know there's going to be this really big meal at some point, the great supper of the Lamb, and, and flying, naked flying babies, that just sounds dangerous, frankly, because we all know what babies can do. If that's heaven, then that sounds rubbish. I, I'm, honestly, you can keep it. I don't want that. But that is not actually what the Bible describes heaven as being. But we have this idea that if, if we could just grasp, friends, what heaven is like, then we would live life differently here. So hear me out. This is very, very important. We have this idea that when we die, we're going to spend eternity in heaven. And heaven's going to be this ethereal, like elf-like, wispy, lots of clouds, lots of singing kind of experience. And none of that actually makes me go, wow, I'm going to give my life to that. Because part of me goes, that sounds dull. But that's not what the Bible says eternity is filled with. If you have had a recent love, and I have to be very careful because I know we have a people in the room we love who experience loss. Your loved one, then believing in Jesus is with Jesus in heaven. But that is not the long-term plan of God. What the long-term plan of God is, according to Revelation 21, 22, 1 Corinthians and Romans chapter 8, is redemption of our bodies. New heaven, new earth, a new Jerusalem with Jesus sat on the throne. See, we were created to be physical creatures, to feel, to touch, to enjoy, to be exhilarated, to enjoy music and art. The feel of, like I was sat watching my son play soccer yesterday and I just had my feet in the grass because that's a nice feeling. We are being created to be physical. And so when Jesus comes and he is going to be king and this event, this redemption, this revealing of the sons of God is going to come. He's going to sit on the throne, on earth, new heaven, new earth. And we get to live on this new earth forever. And if you, whatever you enjoy now... Think of it amped up into eternity, infinity. That's how much it's going to be good then. If we can go and enjoy the sunset now in this broken world that is groaning for the revealing of the sons of God, imagine how good that sunset's going to be when King Jesus is sat on the throne and we are living on this new earth. Now, this might shake some of you because you think, well, I thought heaven was like wispy clouds. and No, 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 no. Our eternity is new earth, new heaven where the lamb will lie down with the lion. Where there will be this peace, where sin reigned, there will be justice, there will be joy, there will be purity, no sickness, laughter. That everything that we ache for now will be given to us in abundance. Have you seen the movie Avatar? When they're walking through the forest and things are glowing and popping up. And every time my wife and Zoe goes, I kind of think that's what heaven's going to be like. And I'm like, no, no, no. Because if man could figure that out, imagine what God has figured out for us in new earth. 
That when you believe in Jesus, you become a citizen. We've just sung it. The citizen of that new earth. Are you in or are you out? Are you so focused on this that you are missing out on the reality of that? Because if we truly believe what Paul is trying to push us towards here, then we will live life differently. We would be bold. And as Isaiah said, we will run like children again. Oh, that sounds good. Because let's be honest, this world is in entropy. Volcanoes. And going to bed at night and getting up in the morning, I can't move my neck anymore. Like, what's going on? I am getting older, and so is the world. What hope do we have? New earth, new heaven, the glory, the freedom of the glory, the revelation, the redemption, redemption, the redeeming back to the way things should have been at creation. That is God's plan for us. The Bible is the story of restoration. Verse 24, for me to finish. For in this hope, We were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Think about that. If you are hoping in something that you can actually visualize and see, that's not hope. For who hopes for what he can see? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for him with patience. Friends, the suffering you're experiencing, the suffering you are witnessing... There's a new earth and a new heaven that is coming. And we can hope in that. So this leads us to an ultimate question as we finish. Where do you place your hope and assurance? The answer to that can be evidenced by how you live your life. Because if you live your life with an assurance and hope in heaven and the glory to come, then your decisions will follow. And whatever you place your hope and assurance in, those decisions will follow and your decisions will look and point to your hope and assurance. So if your hope and assurance is based in your business or in your family or in the success of your kids, on the number of goals he or she scores on a Saturday morning, how good looking they are, how fit they are, how much broccoli they eat, what school they go to, what your RESP looks like, what your TFSA looks like, and how much golf you get to do at the end of your life, that's where your hope and assurance lies then your decisions will be oriented towards that. But if your hope and assurance lies in the cross and Jesus Christ dying on it so that you and I could not only have this hope for eternity, but that we can actually live life boldly in an adventure and feel life the way it was meant to be felt, then our decisions will follow. We will seek ways in which to serve him. We won't be wondering whether we should sponsor a kid to go to camp. We won't be deliberating whether we should give to the church financially. We won't be deliberating whether or not we should join a community group. We won't be deliberating as to whether or not we should tell somebody about Jesus or whether we should take that risk because it might be that God will do great things through you. All those things will become standard if our assurance and hope is placed on Jesus today and for the hope that is to come we lived like that, if we live like that, then we will hold life with an open hand. It's all for you, Jesus. Let me finish by reading to you a beautiful paragraph from the last battle. I'm sorry, we were laughing about this in the the prayer because I said, I'm going to kind of ruin the whole series of C.S. Lewis Narnia books. How many of you read the first book? Okay, put your hands up high. You don't need to be ashamed. It's a great book. How many of you have seen the movie? Okay, more hands. Bless you. 
I love our culture. How many of you have read all the books? Oh, wow, great. Okay, so all those people with their hands up know then what I'm about to say is probably going to destroy the other people's lives just a little bit because they all die in the first book. You know that, right? How many of you know what I'm talking about? All, all the children are dead? You know that, right? They are? Yeah, they are. They all die on the train on the way to the house. <laughs> Sorry for the spoiler, but then I was laughing about this, and Josh said, hey, they've had 50 years, so, you know, it's not hardly a spoiler if you've had 50 years to find out the real story. So I'm sorry to break that to you, but I have to tell you that before I read you this paragraph, because this is in the final book, and it says this. (laughs) I'm going to get complaints. I know I am. And he, Aslan, spoke. Aslan is the lion representing Jesus. Listen to this. He no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this, the end of all stories, right here. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. The real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's eternity with Christ. Let's not focus on just this. Let's focus on what is to come. Let's focus on the beauty and the joy of the gospel. Let's rejoice in it, talk about it, sing about it. Let's pray about it. We're going to sing in a second a beautiful song. And it's come to the altar. And the final words are this. I want to highlight these words because this is basically what I've been preaching on. And Josh didn't know I was speaking on this this morning. So this is another beautiful God incidence. It says this, bear your cross as you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasure you found. Bear your cross as you wait for the crown. Father, I pray now in all sincerity for the people in the room. Father, I pray from the perspective of a pastor's heart. I love these people. And I sorrow with them as they go through their suffering. But Lord, I pray that they would find hope that Paul has described. Lord, the hope of glory, the freedom that is to come, the new earth, the new heaven, the kingdom that is to come. That Lord, that they would live with that lens. And even at the most painful of times, whether it be physically or emotionally, that Lord, that you would whisper, just as we read in verse 16, you would whisper truth and bear witness of the truth of all that we have read this morning. Lord, I pray for us as Christians that, that God, that we would live boldly, that we would live impassioned, that we would live on adventure, that we would live the way that, God, you have called us to. That, Father, we would say no more excuses. I'm going to dedicate my life to the calling that he has given me to be witnesses to Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give us boldness for that, 
that we would get deep assurance that you are with us now and you are with us in eternity. That King Jesus, you truly will be ultimate and king to us. Father, I pray that as a church, that Lord, as we grow together in this truth, that Father, people would come to know you. Lord, I pray for the people in the room who are on a journey. They're still figuring out what this life is meant to be like. Lord, I pray you would speak to them. Lord, I pray you would do only that which you can do, which is draw them to yourself. But Lord, I'm thankful that this truth, this gospel, that Jesus, you died and took all the punishment of the sin that I truly deserve. That Lord, that that truth, that gospel, the power of it, Lord, is your power. I pray you would change lives this morning. Father, as we just read from C.S. Lewis, Lord, I'm thankful that every chapter is better than the one before when it comes to being in you. So Lord, I pray now as we sing this final song, that we would sing it as a prayer, that we come to the altar, we love you and we seek and confess. We ask of you, but Lord, I pray that we would live life now bearing the cross as we wait for the crown. In Jesus' name, amen.